If you uh, would remain standing at this time and open up with me to uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Uh, I really encourage you to to open it up yourselves. There's something about opening up the Word of God uh, on your own and reading it that shows to yourself and to God that you want to listen to it, that you want it to change you, and that you want it to do amazing things in your life. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated at this time. Uh, So I want to welcome you here today. I'm really glad you're here. And I kind of wanted to start out a little different than what I normally do. Normally I kind of start out a sort of epic, sort of serious type thing. Well, I'm going to start out a little different. We're going to have some audience participation. Now I'm not going to call you out uh, single-handedly, but we're going to do things together. So we're going to play some word association games. You ever done this before? So I'm going to say a word and you're going to say a word, uh, the first thing that comes to your mind whenever I say that word. So for instance, if someone were to say, James, what is the first thing you think of when you think of Houston summer? I might say blazing hot, right? Amazing, super, super hot. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. So I encourage you, I'm going to do it. I encourage you to to say it out loud. I give you permission to talk in church during this one little segment. After this, you're not going to be able to talk, so feel free to get it out now. I want you to say it out loud for the sake of everyone. All right. What is the first thing you think of whenever I say the word McDonald's? Okay, food, McDonald's, fries. Did anyone say, like, cheap, nasty? Did anyone say that? Okay, we, we had a few. Okay, I, okay, we're, we're getting it. All right, how about this? What is the first thing you think of whenever I say the word Arby's? Roast. <laughs> Roast beef. I, I don't know. For some reason, some people don't like Arby's, but I like Arby's. Like, I know the Wellingtons don't really like Arby's. It's a good place to go. Um, okay, let's do a few more, uh, get this going. Um, what's the first thing you think of when I say dentist office? <laughs> Cavities, pain. Um, root canal, not, not positive associations, right? Let's do a few more. Uh, what's the first thing you think of when I say Christmas? <laughs> Sean says wonder, an epicenter of gospel wonder, uh, presence, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, okay. Uh, how about one more? So if you haven't been participating, this is your shot, your last chance to talk uh, during the sermon. So what is the first thing you think of when I say the 2016 presidential election cycle? embarrassment, painful, 
dumpster fire, as John likes to say, like a, like a plane crash or a car wreck. It's, it's hard to look away. Um, so these are so, so good. I appreciate you guys uh, participating a little bit. And the reason I wanted to do that is I kind of wanted to point out that there are certain words that have certain connotations to us, right? There are certain things that we associate with different words. So if I say Christmas, you have a certain connotation. You have certain ideas in your mind about Christmas. Or if I say McDonald's or the dentist's office, you also have connotations about that. And once you have those connotations, once they're in your brain, once it's stuck in your brain, it's, it's hard to remove those connotations, right? Uh, they're sort of ingrained in your brain. Once you've had an experience with something, it's hard to separate that experience. So this week, as I was studying this passage, I was reading this thing that, that Paul had wrote to this church called Philippi, or in Philippi. Um, I was doing some word associations. And so as I was reading the text, one word sort of jumped out, and that was salvation, Right, So if in modern America, we don't really use that word salvation very often outside of the church. Right? Can you think of a, 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 a one thing that we use salvation outside of the church? We don't really use it. We say the word savior, but salvation is not really a word that we use. But in the church, we, we use the word a lot, right? And if you grew up in the 90s like me, salvation was basically like a plane ticket to heaven. This is the kind of the way that we viewed salvation, right? We, we viewed salvation as a plane ticket to heaven. It takes me from here, earth, and it takes me over to there, heaven, right? So it was this, this thing. And so as I was doing these word associations, one word that I thought of whenever I, I was thinking of salvation was car, right? So salvation is a vehicle that we get in, and then we, we take it and we get to heaven, and if you grew up in the 90s, or maybe even now, maybe this is your idea of salvation. Or maybe you think of salvation as something that happened to you in the past, right? When I think of when I got saved, I think about when I was 13 years old, right? That was over a decade ago. Maybe for you it was when you were 20 or in your 30s or whenever. Maybe it was last year. But, but you think of salvation in terms of some events that happened in your past, Right? So the first one was we think of salvation as something in the future. And the second one is well, sometimes we think of salvation in terms of something that happens in the past. We see it either as a way to get to heaven or something that happened to you in the past. And while these may be true, and I'm not trying to knock you if you believe that, these may be true. But what I want to offer you today is I think that there is a, a bigger understanding for salvation in the scripture besides just a, a plain ticket to heaven. And if you have this sort of understanding, you're, you're kind of like me, don't feel bad. I sort of had this understanding. But I think that there are some problems if you think of salvation primarily in this way. Let me tell you why. If you think of salvation only in terms of an event in your past, all right, so let's think about that. Salvation is just some event in your past. It's something that you did. You were 13. You came forward. Maybe they had an altar call. You came forward. You said, I want to give my life to Jesus. You signed a little card, and maybe your parents took your picture, whatever, but it was some distant thing in the past, right? If that's the only way that you view salvation, then I feel like it sort of messes with your present life now, and this is how. This is what I think. If you only view salvation in terms of the past, and it, it sort of causes you to become complacent about where you are right now. It, it causes you to become complacent about growing spiritually in this life right now. Right? Because if you just got saved sometime in the past, it's done. You, you got the little card. You got the ticket. You're just waiting until you get to heaven. 
if that's the only way that you view salvation. You're just waiting for your flight to take off. How about this? We often think of salvation in terms of something in the future that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And so we think that salvation, you know, we believe in Jesus, and so we're just waiting around until he comes back. Just sort of bide in time, you know, like it's been 2,000 years. When are you coming back, Jesus? I thought this was what this whole thing was about, right? The problem with that understanding, I think, is it starts to affect the way that you view the world. Like if you only view salvation in terms of some future event that's going to happen, then it may cause you to be more neg- have a more negative view toward the, vo- the world. Like a more pessimistic view toward the world. Like you may look at presidential elections and think, man, there's just no hope for this world. When is Jesus coming back? Because we just got to get this over. There is no hope for our country. Or maybe you lose out on hope for people. Maybe you look at the world and you see sort of the things going on and you see sins of people and you see problems that they struggle with. And you think, man, there's just no hope for these people. We just need Jesus to come back today. And I feel like a lot of Christians, especially in America, are sort of circling the wagons around the church, right? We're just chilling. We're just hanging out until Jesus comes back because we see salvation as something that's going to happen in the future, But today, the title of my message and the thing that I really want to leave with you, the thing that I hope sticks with you is this, that salvation is more than a destination. Salvation is more than a destination. And this is what I mean. I think that Jesus had much more in mind whenever he saved us out of darkness into the light. I think he had much more in mind than just taking us from here and taking us to heaven. You see, for Jesus, salvation is nothing short of a powerful work that transforms who you are and how you interact with the world. And so you see a little difference there? Instead of being a car, a vehicle that takes you somewhere else, it's about a transformation that happens in your life through the gospel. That Jesus is saving you to change who you are and change what your purpose is. So I want you to look with me. Look back to verse uh, 12. Um, And look at what Paul says to this church. So obviously this was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, We believe that he was writing from a prison at the time. And this was a church that he had uh, helped start. And he's writing the church to encourage it to continue on in unity and obedience. So this is what he says in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we're going to zero in on this phrase, work out your salvation. You guys ever heard this phrase before? Work out your salvation. And to allude to the introduction, if salvation was just some event in your past, or if it was just some destination in your future, then why would Paul tell you to work out your salvation? Right? Think about that. Well, how do you work out a past event? How do you work out a future destination? That's why I think Paul and the Bible and God himself has something much more in mind. But before we get there, I want to spell just a little misconception. Maybe you kind of have this in mind. A lot of people see this phrase, work out your salvation, and they get kind of scared, right? Because we're we're a gospel-centered church. We believe in grace. We believe that we're saved from our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And so you see a passage like this, and you say, well, we'll work. No, work. We, We don't work for salvation. We don't work for salvation, right? But I think we really have to pay attention to the wording here. Does it say work for salvation? 
No, it doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't preach that. That's legalism. Does it say work towards your salvation? No, it doesn't say that either. That's another form of legalism. It says work out your salvation. So work out your salvation must mean something difficult or something different. And I believe that this is what Paul means. Who you're becoming is, is as important as where you're going. Who you're becoming is just as important as where you're going. God's desire in your salvation is not just to whisk you away to heaven. Though ultimately we hope for that, we want that. God's desire for you in your salvation is that you'd be made into his image again. That he is making you more like Jesus Christ. That he's saving you from your sins so that you can reflect his character in the world. Paul says in verse 15, he calls the Philippians and he says, you are children of God. And that's why I love that we sing that song earlier. It says, I am a child of God. And I think that's really, really important for understanding salvation. I want you to imagine a scenario with me, all right? So imagine this with me. Imagine you and your spouse want to adopt a child, okay? You're with me? You want to adopt a child. And you go through the process. I hear it's a really long process. Could take months, could take years, whatever it is. It's a very long process. But ultimately, you get matched with an eight-year-old girl named Sophia. Like You meet Sophia. You fall in love with her. You, you want to adopt her as your own. So you go through the process. It takes months. It takes years. It's a long time. But you finally get it. And she comes to your home. And you find out she's kind of a difficult child. She uh, acts up a lot. She, uh, you know, doesn't really behave. She's got some emotional baggage. Obviously, if, she's, if she was in foster care, maybe she had an abusive home growing up, and then she moved to foster care, and maybe she got neglected there, and finally she comes into your home, and you find that she's a difficult child. But you love her, right? You, you want to care for her. You want her to learn from you in your pattern of godly obedience. So you uh, share with her. You discipline her. You, you teach her for your good. You want her to shape her into your image, into being a godly person in this life. So in this story, the issue is not about her last name. She's already adopted. She already has your last name. It's done. You can't take that away from her. She is your blood now. But you still want her to grow in godliness. You still want her to grow in joy. You still want her to grow to be the godly person that God wants her to be. And this is the image that I think that God has for us. He's adopted us into his family. We bear his last name. We are his forevermore. But he doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to be shaped. He wants us to be more and more like him in this life. He wants us to take on his values, his attitudes, his characteristics of love and peace and kindness in the world. And when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what he means is, is work out what it means to be like Jesus. Like if salvation were just some destination or just some ticket, I don't think that Jesus would be so concerned about who we are. But so much of the Bible, you read epistle after epistle, book after book, it talks about who we are and who we're becoming. Like God wants us to be like him. He wants us to shed the baggage that comes with sin so that we can be more like him in his image. As one writer put it, your destiny is to become like Jesus. Your destiny is to become like Jesus. I thought that was so powerful, so poetic. And in this lifetime, you have an opportunity for you to explore all the ways that it looks like to become more like him. Okay.
So if we've established that, if we've established our salvation is becoming more like Jesus and not just some event in the future, not some thing in the past, then this may cause us to be a little um, negative or a little pessimistic, right? Because being like Jesus is hard. Like, amen? Is being like Jesus hard? I mean, the dude walked in absolute humility, literally walked to the cross for the sake of people who were hating him at the time. Being like Jesus is very difficult. When I think about myself, when I think about the baggage that I have and the the short-sightedness that I have and, and all the different things that I am, introverted, all these different things, it's very hard to be like Jesus. Being like Jesus seems like sometimes it's out of reach. And so if I were going to preach to you today and I say, just become more like Jesus, that's what I want you to do. Try harder, be more like Jesus. That would be a very hard thing to do. But fortunately, Paul provides relief for us in verse 13. So I want you to look at verse 13 and look at what it says. After he says, work out your salvation, what does he say? He says, for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You can have hope that you are becoming like Jesus because God is at work in you. And he's at work in you today, right now. God is at work in you right now. And he's at work in you in two ways. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit. First it says, for God, it is God who works in you to will according to his good pleasure. So that means that God is the one providing the motivation for you to be like him, right? So if you even want to be like Jesus, if you even want to be like God, then that's God himself working in you. Uh, I remember a few years back, um, I was helping out with the youth, and uh, there was one guy, I mean, he was a good guy, like genuine guy, and uh, he just came to me, and he was like, man, I'm just struggling with a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of baggage, got a lot of sin, got a lot of issues, and so he's like kind of confessing a lot of these things to me, and he's like, man, I, I don't even know if I'm saved. I, I don't even know if I'm a, a Jesus follower. And while I cannot, like, confirm, I don't know his heart, I'm not God, but I can't confirm that. But what I told him is the same thing that I would tell you if you're struggling with sin in your life. Is that if you even have the desire to be like Jesus, then that proves that God is working in you. That God is not finished with you. That he's doing something in your life. So if you're struggling with the same things over and over and over again, and you're feeling this, like, remorse in your heart for it, just know that God's working in you. Like, if God weren't working in you, you wouldn't feel bad about it, right? That's kind of what the Bible says over and over and over again about people in the world. They, they, they sin, and they celebrate it. They don't, they don't feel bad about it. But, but we, in the church, we, we, we don't like sin. We know that it's destructive. And so if you see your sin as destructive, you know that God is at work in you right now, today, at this very moment, at 1126 a.m. on this Sunday morning. God is working in you. But not only that, it says God provides the will, but it says he also helps you to to act towards his good pleasure, right? So it's not just that God gives you the desire, but he also gives you the ability to do it. And so if you're here today and you are struggling with the same things over and over over again, sometimes it's very, very easy to have this mentality of like, woe is me, I've got the same sins, I'm struggling with them over and over and over again, there's no hope. Can't wait till heaven when I don't have to struggle with it anymore, right? This is sort of the thought that we have sometimes. But this passage provides this explosive truth that God not only gives you the will to work for his good pleasure, but he gives you the ability to do it. 
that you can have hope over your sin, that you can break addiction, you can break chains and all these different things, that through the gospel, God provides the power to do these things. So God works in you to will and to act to his good pleasure. You are becoming more like Jesus, not only because you're working out your faith, but because God is working in you for your faith. And so we hold these two things in tension, that we have a responsibility in living out our life and trying to follow God, but we know that ultimately God is the one who's providing the source and the power for us. Okay. So if these things are true, what's the result of all this? What's the, what's the point? Why is Jesus spending so much time on shaping you to be a certain type of person, right? He's certainly going to a lot of effort. He wrote a lot of books about being more like him, right? He's going to a lot of effort to do this. Why would he do that? If you look in verse 14, I think we're going to see what happens whenever we, we grow to be more like Jesus as a community. Look at verse 14. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And what I believe that Paul is saying today is that your obedience presents Jesus as an alternative to the world. That your obedience presents Jesus as an alternative to the world. Jesus himself said to the church that you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. So the reason that Jesus is changing us, the reason he's making us more like himself, is so that the world can look at us and be like, wow, that is what it looks like to be like Jesus. That we are a window to the world, to the life and to the power of Jesus Christ. And sometimes in this life, whenever we lose focus on becoming more like Jesus, we become more and more like the world. We lose this status as a city on a hill. We lose this status as the light of the world. That Jesus is making you into something so that you can be a light to the world. Uh, I heard one uh, writer put it this way, and he used this word, contrast community. Now, that's kind of a weird word. We don't really use it. I think he was trying to be clever, but I really liked it, right? He said, we as a church are a contrast community. And what he meant by that is that the church is supposed to provide an alternative to this world. When you look at the world and when you look at, just think of the presidential election cycle. Let's just use that as an example. We'll milk that all day long today. Look at the presidential election cycle. What are some adjectives of that cycle? Antagonistic? Um, painful, um, bickering, disputing, competitiveness, selfishness, all these things dominate this presidential election cycle. And this is representative of the world. The world out there is like that. It is dog-eat-dog. It is hard out there. And Jesus Christ calls us to be a contrast to that. So whereas the world is complaining, we are a people of thanksgiving. Whereas the world is a world of competitiveness and dog-eat-dog, we are a world of mutual submission to one another. Whereas the world has bickering and competitiveness and selfishness, we say there is an alternative to that in this life. That there is an alternative to those things in this life, and that is the way of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Jesus is making you more like him, so that you can be a light to other people. 
Uh, one more uh, quick story, and, the, and then we'll draw to a close. But first, I want to uh, tell you this. Uh, some of you may remember, but before we were actually in this room, we uh, were actually over here in the gym. And uh, while we were meeting over in the gym, there was a guy who would come to our church very often. Maybe you never met him. He was sort of quiet, didn't talk to too many people. But he would come in. Uh, but you may know him because he slept every service. Like, he literally slept every service. He was just snoozing. He was clonked out. I mean, literally, uh, whenever, like, John or the pastor would make, a, like, a point, you know, like, they make a hard point, then it gets real quiet, you would hear him snoring. Like, it would it totally just defeat the point, right? So this guy would come to the service, and he would come in, and he would snore a lot. But, but over the, the, the months that he was here, we, we kind of got to meet him, and especially my parents, and uh, they kind of heard his story. And this dude was a homeless guy, I mean, just, just straight up. The dude was homeless. He kind of like lived across the street, and he would just come on Sunday. He liked to come here. He liked to sing. He liked to, to be a part of our community. Maybe he didn't like to hear the messages. He slept through them, but he liked who we were. He wanted to be a part of who we were. And as we got to know him, we kind of asked him, like, well, what, what brings you back here? Like, why, why do you keep coming to this church? Well, I mean, what, what's the deal? And he says day after day, night after night, he stays across the street. And I, I don't know if you know this, but sort of right down the street is like a huge like drug trafficking thing. You may not know this, but it's like Houston, Texas, right? So there's a huge like drug trafficking scene right down the street. And he says, when I'm across the street, I'm sucked into this world of pain and of sorrow and of uh, self-hurt and all these different things. And he says, when I look across the street, when I go across the street to y'all's church, it's like a different world. I come to you guys and I see y'all as a family. Like, I don't have family over there. I have family over here. I come to you guys and you're trying to help me. You're trying to help me be a better person. And so for him, even looking across the street, this church provided a, a, a light for him and a way out for what he was in. And this is our encouragement for us to be like that every day for the people that we're around. So as we uh, draw to a close, I, I, I kind of want to circle back to where we started. And we kind of started with a very simplistic view of salvation. I said, sometimes you have this idea that salvation is just some destination in the future, right? Uh, something that we, we think about, just a plane ticket, just a car gets you into the future. This is sort of, if you grew up in the 90s, this is the way you think about it. Some of you think of salvation in terms of something just in the past. Something that happened to you in the past and you got your ticket, you're done, you don't have to worry about it anymore. But today what I hope that I've left with you, what I hope that Paul has left with you, um, is, is this idea that salvation is more than a destination that salvation is something that God is doing in your life. That's something that he's transforming your life into who he is to reflect who he is in the world. And as we reflect on what it means for us to work out our salvation, I want to leave you sort of with this thought. This is my, this is my action plan for you this week. Is I want you to treat your life like a canvas. What do I mean by that? I want you to treat your life by a canvas. This is what, this is what I mean. If you view your, your salvation as just a car or just a ticket or just a boarding pass, I want you to think of it in this way. Imagine your life, imagine your salvation as a, a, a canvas, like an art canvas, right? Sort of got the, the four corners, it, it's blank. And this is your life. 
And God's given you the, the paintbrushes. He's kind of taught you a little bit. He sort of taught you how to paint a little bit. And he wants you to take this canvas and he wants you to, and he says, I want you to, to paint your life. I want you to paint a gospel-centered life. And so as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what this means is that as you're a, maybe a stay-at-home mom, or maybe you, you, you go to an office building, or maybe you're retired, but the point is that Jesus wants you to figure out what it looks like to be a Jesus follower where you're at. That your life is a blank canvas. He says, do what you want with it, but honor me with it. And so that's what I encourage you guys to do today, is to not treat salvation as just this like check mark, this ticket that you have. But that's just this thing that God is doing, that he's changing you. He's making you more like him. And so I encourage you to go and live this week like that. Not as pessimistic, but as hopeful in the gospel. And I love you guys so much. I just want you to know that I pray for you all the time. And I hope you're praying for me. And right now, I just want to pray that you would go forth and that you would view your salvation as something powerful and something that impacts every facet of your life. So would you pray with me? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, you're so good. You're so amazing, Lord. Father, I pray for these people. I pray, Lord, that you would just move in their hearts today to help them see that you have so much planned for their life. That salvation is not just some checkbox, a get-out-of-hell-free card, Lord, that it's so much more than that. That salvation involves the reconciliation of the world. That this world is full of darkness, but we are called to be people of light. And so, Lord, I pray for the people in this room, whether they're members, visitors, first time here today, I pray that in this moment, Lord, that they would feel your love for them. And they would begin to, to feel you working in their heart, branching out, so finding the ways that they can serve you more, that they can enjoy you more. Father, we love you. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that makes all this possible, that opens up a, a way into this new life. We love you, Lord, and it's in the name of the Father, it's in the name of the Son, it's in the name of the Holy Spirit that we pray as one people. Amen.